Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 Billion Fulfilled People, I tracked down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interviewed them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Lynn McTaggart. Lynn is an award-winning journalist and the author of seven books, including her latest book, The Power of Eight, and three worldwide bestsellers, The Field, The Intention Experiment, The Bond, which are all considered seminal books on the new science and are now translated into 30 languages. She is consistently voted one of the world's top 100 spiritual leaders for her groundbreaking work with consciousness and the power of intention. Lynn has been a featured speaker in a host of movies, including What the Bleep, The Living Matrix, I Am, and The Abundance Factor. She's also the co-founder and editor of the world's number one health magazine, What Doctors Don't Tell You, which is published in 14 countries worldwide, I believe. Lynn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Duncan. I was looking up um, some some of the uh, some of your titles or, or what you've been referred to as over the years, and I think some of them were metaphysical rock star, the Madonna <laughs> of the quantum world. But my my personal favorite title was uh, the Dalai Mama. That's 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 number one in my in my book. <laughs> that is mine too, and it was given to me by Tom Shadiak, who did the movie I Am. He did an intro for me one time in a in a talk I gave, and because he was showing his movie then, and referred to me as that, which was really darling. <laughs> if someone says the phrase uh, "we're all connected," we're all one, I'm sure there's some people whose eyes are going to roll back, you know, in the back of their head and think, oh God, here we go. But there's actually so much science behind this. Could you maybe describe this idea of we're all connected, we're all one in relation to biology and in particular mirror neurons? Sure. I mean, I'd like to address it in a couple of ways. Yeah. First of all, I just want to put on the table that what I really hate is unsupported woo-woo. I really do. I mean, I have a background as an investigative reporter. That's where I came from and started out my life. So that kind of desire to have evidence for things has never left me. Um, When we talk about we're all one, on a quantum level, uh, we are all one because we have, uh, you know, on our nethermost level, we are made up of subatomic particles. And subatomic particles aren't little individual entities like a billiard ball you know, as they're described in in high school physics, they are vibrating packets of energy that trade energy from with other vibrating packets of energy all the time, like an endless game of tennis. So if you factor on all of those little tennis games going on, there is an unbelievable, unfathomable amount of energy being traded in empty space. And there's a couple of implications here. First of all, that creates a giant energy field that has been called the field in my book, the zero point field. Um, But there's two very interesting things about subatomic particles. Number one, they have an infinite capacity for information. And number two, they go on forever. And so if you think of this mothership of quantum field that's sitting out there in empty space, like some supercharged backdrop, it's a memory bank for everything that ever was. And we are part of that. So we essentially have access to everything in the planet and each other. So we are literally all connected on our quantum level. And secondly, on the connection between people, scientists have discovered that we're a lot less individual than we think we are. You know, when we, there are neurons in our head that when we see someone else perform an action or have an emotion 
the very same neurons in us fire as if we were having that emotion, we were performing that action. So we've been designed to have this so that we can empathize with other people. But what that essentially means is that our brains, our minds, what, what we're dealing with all the time is a complex mix of our own thoughts and everybody else's thoughts. We also know from the, the other biology that we look at, the biology of epigenetics, that we aren't built from inside out. We're built from outside in. We are built from environmental influences. Bruce Lipton talks about this hugely. The quartet of atoms that sit above the gene, they determine, you know, genes are like the keys of a piano. They sit silently until they, and wait to be played. And what plays them are, is that epigenome, that, that quartet of atoms that sit above the genes that are hugely affected by our environment. You know, the water we drink, the food we eat, the friends we have, you know, the sum total of how we live our lives, that determines whether those genes are going to be played, those keys are going to be played. So again, we are built, we, are, we have a bond between ourselves and the environment that is, you know, impossible to break. That determines who we are, that builds us from outside in. So all of these things de demonstrate that it's pretty hard to say, this is us. This is where we end and that's where the rest of the world begins. When, when you were speaking to like quantum physicists, because you came from like a journalist background and like maybe science wasn't your thing, it was very much using metaphors and um, pictures to try and break down this this science that is maths and physics and it blows your head into actually pictures. And one, one thing which described that well, which blew my head, was say you're having a conversation with somebody and, you know, we're sitting, whatever, like, um, you know, a couple of feet away from each other. There's more energy just in that empty space between us to, to, to boil all the water in the ocean or something. Was that, was that, was that it? Yeah, all the oceans in the world. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just, that's just blows my head. I mean, it's because we, we just, we're so, we believe this is just empty space and it's nothing. And that, if, if you accept that, then it just makes you think like, what, like, what, we've just got no idea what's going on, do we? And I, I find that quite an exciting thought as opposed to, well, I think it is exciting because the science that we've been given, the science we've been told, is a very bleak view of the world. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of, you know, the Darwinian view of eat or be eaten. You know, um, you've got to get to the finish line before someone else gets there first. Uh, zero sum game. And the other idea that we are, you know, this individual, this lonely thing on a lonely planet in a lonely universe, you know, that we are so isolated and individual. And that's the antithesis of my work. All of my work is all about the fact that we are connected, that we thrive when we use that connection, whether it's in large groups or small, and that, you know, we need it, we need it, and we need to be part of something bigger. In fact, we thrive when we get off of ourselves and think about somebody else. There's a famous study from the 1950s called the Robbers Cave Experiment. Could you describe that to anyone who's not familiar with it? Yeah, I love this experiment. It's one of the most beloved psychological experiments of all time. It really illustrates um, the power of going after a larger goal. Um, Mustafa Sheriff, who is the godfather of social science, uh, social psychology, um, put together an experiment where he got a batch of 12-year-old boys, put them in two buses, and sent them down to summer camp. 
And they never set eyes on the other group, but they were told to devise their own names, their own identities, their own flags, and they were put in separate housing. And the first time they met each other, they were engaged in highly competitive games. And watching from the sidelines were a bunch of camp counselors who were actually social psychologists in, dis in disguise. Now, after a while, they didn't have to stoke the competition because the kids were killing each other. They were ripping up each other's flags. They were beating each other. They were stealing each other's prize money. They hated each other. <laughs> they hated each other. And no amount of, you know, jolly getting to know you type events in the evening could overcome that. So then the psychologist decided to devise a bunch of crises in the camp. So they put an impediment in the water water supply and the boys had to work together to get it out and they put a truck in the ditch boys had to work together to get it out and lo and behold after a while they noticed something miraculous happening the boys were sitting and eating together they were starting to befriend each other and ultimately they unanimously voted to ride on the same single bus on the way home and one of the heads of one of the groups spent all of his prize money to buy ice cream for the whole lot. It's, it's amazing and it's called a superordinate goal. It's so powerful because it's been demonstrated over and over again, the power of everyone coming together to do something collectively that cannot be achieved by individuals alone and how that breaks down separation, that breaks down animosity. It's, it's, you know, it's why oftentimes people unite over a war but there are other ways, nonviolent ways, to come together as, as well. But it's just one of those demonstrations of the power of the collective. Do you, do you feel that just our societies and systems are set up in a way that just make conflict inevitable? Oh, totally. I mean, not every society is this violent or aggressive or zero-sum game. I mean, and I think that one of the big culpable agents here is science. You know, everybody has to understand that a science is not a finite truth. It's just a story. You know, it tells us who we are and how we're supposed to live. And every so often a new chapter is written that invalidates everything else that came before. And the, the story that we're going on, the, the chapter we're still on, is a story that really came from the 1700s from Isaac Newton that described this very well-behaved universe of separate objects that, oper that were very well-behaved and operated according to fixed laws in time and space. And then the other part that augmented this very lonely, individualistic view of isolated things operating according to these fixed laws, but operating individually, was the Darwinian view of, you know, that life's pretty rough and, you know, you've got to, you've got to get there first. You damn well better get there first. And so that has been translated really since the industrial age into our businesses, into our way of life. You know, it's been embraced by the West and it really accounts for so much of the problems that we have because it is the eat or be eaten mentality. And it is, you know, I wrote about this a great deal in The Bond, and it really prompted my work in my new book, The Power of Eight, to look for the healing power of small groups. And, you know, what I discovered almost accidentally was that small groups have an enormous rebound effect in tending 
not in individualistically, but in a small group, has an extraordinary rebound effect and be, can be amazingly healing, not just for the recipient, but also for everyone else involved. And that accidental discovery makes me believe, and more and more as I work with group intention, makes me believe we were never meant to be alone. Unlike a lot of people in this field who are either scientists or they come from a very new age perspective, my perspective was, you know, I started out my career hunting down baby sellers with hidden micro microphones and things. I was going to put bad guys in jail. You know, that was my work. And so that kind of skepticism hasn't ever left. So when I heard about the power of intention and also when I was interviewing scientists for the field, there was a lot of information about the idea that thoughts are not just things, but there are things that affect other things. And they have the capacity to change physical matter. And this has been demonstrated in a lot of experiments, but I was curious, like a journalist is, saying, and you know, we, there was all this stuff about law of attraction and the secret. And to me, all I did was sort of have some awkward questions here, like, okay, so what are we talking about here? Are we talking about affecting a quantum particle here, or are we talking about curing cancer? And why are we using this to manifest parking spaces when we could be saving the world with it? And also, what happens when lots of people are thinking the same thought at the same time? Does that somehow magnify the effect? So by then I'd had, I knew a lot of scientists in this area, and I also had loads of readers, you know, my re books are read around the world, et cetera, and I thought, well, if I could put them together, I'll have the biggest global laboratory in the world. And I can really test this out. So that's what the intention experiment was meant to be, putting this all to the ultimate test, largely because I was pretty much a 21st century Downing Thomas. I did this and, you know, the experiments worked. Short, short answer to that. They, they worked. We, I've run 30 of them to date. Everything from making plants grow faster to, you know, making changing the pH of water and changing other properties of water to lowering violence in war-torn area, even helping someone um, get over post-traumatic st uh, stress disorder. And we've run all of these with different scientists. And of the 30, 26 have shown measurable, essentially, you know, positive, significant results. And, you know, put that in perspective, no pharmaceutical drug out there has that kind of consistent track record. So that was cool, but it isn't the point of my story. It's not the point of my book. The point of my book that turned everything on its head was that I started looking at and surveying the participants of these big experiments. And I started putting people into small groups of eight too. And I found to my shock that we were affecting the targets, but the biggest effect was on the participants. They were really transforming. And I documented all of this because, as I say, I was carefully, consistently surveying them. We study them afterward. We study them in a variety of ways. And, for instance, when they were involved in a big peace experiment, that's when it first came to light. In 2008, we were sending intention for Sri Lanka. And... Um, you know, we had what looks like an effect. There was a lowering of violence. There was a big change in the war. Our, our timing seemed very pivotal, the eight days we sent intention. 
But again, that's not the interesting part of the story. The interesting part, you know, and maybe we didn't do it. Maybe we did. Maybe it was just coincidence. Who knows? It looked very compelling. But the really interesting and undeniable thing that was going on was I surveyed my participants and there were about 15,000 or so. And thousands of them sent back answers like this. I felt as though I was plugged into a higher network. I was sobbing uncontrollably. I had goosebumps, uh, goosebumps up and down my arms. Um, I'm hugging everybody I come in contact with. I'm in love with strangers. I, I made up with my sister. That bad relationship I had with my husband is now so improved. You know, my, I love my boss, even though I hated him before. And, you know, I quit my job and went to work for the Peace Corps or I decided I had a dead end job and I have set up my own business now. I mean, unbelievable changes. As I say, I've documented them all. And it was consistently over and over and over again that the senders were having some big transformational experience, too. I looked at that because I was trying to figure this out. I mean, and it started it started because not just with the peace experiment, but I decided to run a workshop in 2008 and I'd, I'd never run one before. I'm a journalist. And I thought, well, I, I suppose it's time for me to run a workshop. So how am I going to do this? How am I going to show people the power of intention? We'd had a couple of good results with our experiments, big experiments. So I thought to myself, I'm kicking it around with my husband. And I said, um, maybe I'll put them in groups of eight or so and I'll have them send a healing intention to a member of the group and they'll all hold the same intention, blah, blah, blah. And my husband, who's a He's a journalist, too, and he's a great headline writer. goes, yeah, power of eight. I like that. So we have our first workshop. I put people in groups. I'm completely making it up as I go along, (laughs) saying, go into groups, hold hands, hold the same intention statement. You know, I had some things I knew about how to do intention from studying things with intention masters, and I put that together as a simple program in the intention experiment, and it's in the power of eight, too. You know, I called it powering up and it's about foot mind focus and things like that. But I didn't really know how to do this in a group or what was important. So I just told them what I thought should work. I put them in groups. I have them all send intention to somebody in the group with a health challenge. I tell them to come back the next day and report on what happened. I figured they were going to come back and say, this was a nice little feel good exercise, like getting your back rubbed or something like that or a facial And that's not what happened. What happened was people lined up and person after person after person said things like, I have really bad arthritic pain and it was completely gone. I have had headaches every day of my life and I don't have one today. My IBS feels like it's cleared up and on and on and on for over an hour. And we've had that, you know, I was shocked and I was also a little upset by this because I thought, you know, this is like, this isn't what I do. You know, I, I, I study intention scientifically. This is not what I do. I'm not a healer. I'm not Eric Pearl. I don't do that. He's a good friend, by the way. I don't do that. So it, for one thing, it's why it's taken me nearly 10 years to write this in a book, because I was pretty frightened by it. But in every workshop I ran ever since, same thing. I was just at the Mile High Church in Denver Uh, a couple of days ago, and I was running these groups, and we had extraordinary results. We had a woman with a stroke who was post-stroke. She couldn't focus her eyes, and after the healing intention for her, 
her eyes were focusing normally. We have, you know, an accident victim couldn't lift her arm. It was absolutely frozen shoulder, etc. Felt normal afterward. I've had people with scoliosis write me afterward to say that they've had to change the rear view mirror in their car because their back's so much straighter or somebody, you know, whose arm was totally immobile, who was moving it normally. A woman with MS showed up the next day without her crutches, not cured, but much better. Woman with cataracts said she was 80% better. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. And I, the power of aid is really trying to understand it from every angle, from brain science to altruism. So that's a long-winded, to have a long-winded answer to your question, I've looked at the science of altruism, and altruism is like a bulletproof vest. You're right, there is some weird mirror effect, but better than that, whenever there's an altruistic thing, the givers do better than the receivers. For instance, there's a study of depression. Um, a scientist who was also a priest, who was a psychologist and priest, wanted to see if, um, if praying for people with depression would help them. Because, you know, most prayer is for physical, not mental illness. And so he got a group of 400 people with depression, you know, diagnosed with clinical depression. And he divided them in two groups and had the, the one half be the senders, the prayers, and the other ones being the prayed for. And he measured what had happened to them afterward very scientifically. And he found that the people being prayed for did well, but the people doing the praying did even better. They were far less depressed. And if you look at all the science of altruism, totally the same. People who give whatever they give, if there's some sort of giving in any capacity, they live longer, they're healthier. If they have a condition and they're helping someone else with the condition, they do better than the recipient. So what turns it all on its head for me and turns the whole idea of intention on its head is something I was thinking about when I was watching all of this, because in my little power of eight groups, the senders do as well as the receivers. I'll give you a, an example of this. It's a guy called Wes. Um, he was a Vietnam vet. He was supposed to go to college and get a science degree. He had a whole life plan and it got derailed because he got a low lottery number for the Vietnam War and that meant you go off to war. So he was part of that last year and it was totally traumatic for him. He was very depressed by it. And his life kind of continued down in a lower, you know, in an ever lowering spiral from there. Even he found the love of his life in the late 90s and she lived for a few years and then she died of cancer. And he had enormous bills, had to sell his house just to pay the bills back. It was shocking and awful. And he was part of a little power of eight group that I assembled about two months ago. And he was a sender. He was not even a receiver. And he said he had this almost epiphany of rejuvenation, like, you know, suddenly the grass was smelling, you know, or looking greener and the flowers were smelling sweeter. And he had got to the point in his life of kind of what's the use? He's in his mid-60s. Life had been so crap for him. And suddenly he had all this kind of rejuvenation to get back and do things and all kinds of things. And that has happened over and over and over again. The people doing the sending, they have physical healings, they have mental healings, they have some sort of 
rejuvenation like this, where life makes sense, has purpose, has, you know, they, they find their life's purpose. So I, I have thought a lot about this and about some of the dangerous elements of the self-help movement. Because it's all that focus on the self. Yeah. That could totally toxic. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've been told from the, you know, it's like on a Hallmark card, we've been told do unto others. And I just amend that now. It's think unto others. And, you know, you yourself get healed. So powerful. About, about, about seven years ago, I think, you came across a, a statistic that completely blew you away. I think three quarters of all the medical studies published and these were like these were studies published about the safety and effectiveness of various pharmaceutical drugs three quarters of those studies were in fact written by pr agencies what on earth (laughs) wtf as my 20 year old says yep um and it's not just me it's you know medical journals like the British Medical Journal and the New England Medical Journal and the British, you know, and the uh, JAMA, the you know, Journal of the American Medical Association, all admitting that most of the stuff is massaged, if not made up. I mean, everybody now knows that there is a, you know, that that medical literature is dirty. It's totally dirty. There are organizations that are paid to do the following. They get statistics and information from studies from a drug company. The drug company asks them, put somebody important's name on it. So they contact some doctor in the field who agrees, even, even though he hasn't actually done the study, to put his name on it, make it more prestigious. And then the PR company's job is to massage it, the data as much as they can to make unfavorable stuff disappear and make favorable stuff suddenly take over. And so this stuff is really doctored, very doctored, and it's dirty. It's totally dirty. And people, you know, everybody in the medical profession knows this, and yet they're allowed to get away with it. It shocks me deeply. There's a guy called Peter Gosch, who is the head of the Danish Cochrane Collaboration. That was an organization set up essentially to look at medical studies and say, let's look at what's actually evidence-based, what's really proven. And Gosh came out with a book called Organ- um, Deadly Medicine and Organized Crime. Now this guy is a medical <laughs> insider, right? He's a medical insider. And his book is saying that the drug industry uses every trick that the mafia uses. I mean, and that is somebody who has done medical and drug studies himself, who's the head of a medical body, who's a doctor saying this. And increasingly doctors are. Um, But it's, you know, it's, of course, it's all about the sales. It's all about getting, getting to the audience and making them take drugs, like direct to consumer advertising in America, which took a new low when they started doing advertising to 13-year-olds about taking direct to 13-year-old ads about the HPV vaccine, you know, the so, so, so-called cervical cancer vaccine, saying it was cool to have this vaccine. You know, they were showing cool, hip young girls on skateboards and saying, hey, I want to be one less 
one less who gets cervical cancer. Now that is shocking and disgusting and should be outlawed. And I'm just, you know, I've been running with my husband a magazine called What Doctors Don't Tell You. And we are now all over the place, including the US, UK, and we have 16 countries now. And, um, And I am still outraged. I've been doing this publication in one form or another for 27 years. And every month, he and I are totally outraged by what goes on in the medical profession and the kind of products that are allowed to be released to the public and the amount of harm that it does. So, yeah, that's it's it is an understatement because there's so much noise out there. And I guess one of one of the tactics is just the more confusion, the better, because if there's so much confusion, it's like, OK, we, we, we just don't know what to do. Like, how, how can we find the, the good stuff out there? How can we how can we avoid how can we avoid all the, the noise? Well, I mean, my byproduct has always been evidence. Sure. You know, as I say that I'm a journalist and so I believe in evidence. And what we do in the magazine is we write about the evidence about the dangers of some of these products, these drugs and better alternatives. You know, there's I have a challenge I always throw out to people. Since I have started this magazine, I say to people, okay, name me one drug besides antibiotics that actually can cure you. One drug. And if you know that drug, it might be, I don't even think they've got a drug for cold sores that actually cures it. It might eliminate the cold sores, not going to cure you. Antibiotics are the only thing, and they are fast becoming this, you know, ineffective because of superbugs. But the only drug I think out there that actually cures and doesn't just suppress is antibiotics. You can find another one. Call me up right away and tell me. You're kidding. I literally, I had no idea. I, everything else is just a suppression thing. Suppress, manages the symptoms, takes away pain, but doesn't cure the problem. Doesn't cure the problem. Absolutely. You can say maybe in a very, very, very limited way, um, can some chemotherapy can uh, eliminate. There's a very, very tiny percentage of it that actually eliminates and and cures the situation. Um, That's about it. That's about it. So if you can think of another one, let me know. So with that kind of track record, you know, what we look for all the time is the evidence for alternatives. And there's huge amounts, everything from supplements and diet to many alternative practices have much, much better track record, proven track record, you know, demonstrated through studies or just enormous anecdotal evidence to show that these work better. So that's what we do. That's what we try to do. One thing I, um, I heard this, this was years. This was years ago. I mean, it might be like ten years ago. So, um, if if things have moved on since then, then forgive me. But I heard you want to speak about Fort Field therapy and what is that, and how was that used in Kosovo? Because that was quite interesting. Yeah, well, Thought Field therapy is also there's a do-it-yourself version called emotional freedom techniques, um, but mo- emotional freedom technique, and both are essentially ones that seem like they shouldn't work at all. It's basically tapping. You tap on certain acupuncture points while you're holding certain thoughts or saying certain statements, and they are extraordinarily effective. Now, they're kind of based on to the idea of uh, of a thing called EMDR, which has a lot of evidence that it works, which is 
you follow somebody's finger while you're talking through a traumatic event. And there's something about that doing two things at the same time that helps to erase the pain and trauma of that event. It won't kill the memory altogether. It kills the the pain and the trauma. And the same thing, thought field therapy has been tested out scientifically to help with trauma victims in all kinds of horrible genocide situations like you know, Kosovo and Rwanda and all kinds of places like that, and have shown an unbelievable success rate. Same thing with EFT, emotional freedom techniques. They're getting tested and studied, and there's a fantastic amount of, growing amount of evidence demonstrating the effectiveness of this stuff. Now, compare that to a drug for depression or trauma or a talking cure, and there's just no comparison. I love how it's, it's often the sort of the the simple things which is so much more powerful. Like the, it, it sound I sound like a broken record, but so much, so much, so much comes back to the idea of um, connection, feeling connected, uh, feeling a part of something, feeling like you love someone, that someone loves you. That that is that is almost it's it's a remedy for so so much. Just simple like feeling feeling connected to people that that's huge just that one thing and there's so many amazingly other things like that which are so simple um but we the simple things often we we overlook them i guess well and i think we overlook them because we don't understand the who we are and how we work Mm. we have this very reductive view and that's our big problem you know we think we have to just sort it through that we're a machine and the machine gets bashed with a a wrench or get some oil put in and it should be all better. And that's our kind of model of drugs and surgery. But what things like EFT are showing is that there's, we are actually an energy field. And that if you, you know, how else can this work if you aren't doing something energetic to yourself to completely erase a traumatic situation, the pain of a traumatic situation in an instant? You know, what I have found in my little groups, the power of eight groups, why should that work so well? And, you know, we study this again. The journalist in me wanted to know why these are working. So I actually put people in groups. I got I got assembled about 250 people, gave them a seven week course in how to do this and then assembled them in groups to meet week by week over a year. And this is what I do now with power. I do these master classes that last year. But I studied, the first one I did, I studied them every month over an entire year. And I found that of the people meeting regularly, pretty much 100% of them had major life transformations. That was about 150 who continued to meet in their groups week by week by week. And by transformations, I mean woman, Patty, got over First of all, she erased breast lumps and she got over 15 year chronic depression, uh, uh, chronic fatigue. Mitchell had lifelong depression as a clinical psychologist. You can imagine how depressing that was. And he managed to get over that. We had another woman who repigmented from vitiligo. And but we also had people eliminating um, or rebooting their relationships and creating connections when they had estrangements, serious estrangements, or finding their dream jobs, or having amazing windfalls, or 
completely changing their life's purpose or whatever, but a hundred percent. Now the journalist in me also goes, so what are the odds against chance of 100% of people having these major changes, getting what they asked for? And, you know, I have to say that the chances of that happening are sort of a gazillion to one. But when you talk to them about what did the group intention experience mean for you, them, and their answers were things like this, the idea that somebody, a group of strangers, essentially, because these people met virtually. They met on Skype. They never met. They never met, but they are their dearest family now. And they said, amazing, that a group of what were strangers have got my back, you know, that intend for my highest good week after week. Or the group intention felt like a soup that changed my brain. That's what one woman, how she put it. Another woman just felt like, I'm part of this bigger constellation. I always see us as coming together as this one unit. And what we have to really understand is we were meant to be a bigger whole. And when we do that, and also when we act for the highest good for other people, and that I monitored a lot too. When people got off of themselves and started intending for someone else, they might've been stuck before. I had a bunch of them where nothing was happening, intending, intending, intending in the group for themselves. They finally, I just finally said, get off of yourself. Don't do that anymore. Intend for someone else. And suddenly amazing things happened to them. Dream job. Another woman who had been stuck trying to write a book, couldn't write a book, wasn't having any success with editors, gets off of herself and suddenly out of nowhere, she has a chance meeting with someone who turns out to be a book coach who coaches her through and a, former publisher, coaches her through the whole thing. She ends up with an Amazon bestseller. You know, it's just on and on and on and on. Um, And we actually did a brain research study to look at what happens with these groups. Why? Life University, the largest chiropractic university, offered me their psychology department to do a series of studies. And the first one's been done already. We looked at brainwave uh, activity of the senders, the senders, not the receivers. And we found that there was this kind of global quieting of the brain of the part, the parietal lobes that make us feel separate. Like this is where we end and the rest of the universe begins or the exec and the executive functions of the brain, the the frontal lobes. And they're very much involved in, again, separation, sense of me, not me, but also doubt, worry, all those negative things all of that stuff was turned way down. Those, those brain waves indicate, and they were a signature almost identical to the work of Andrew Newberg, who's done a lot of brainwave studies of Sufi masters and Buddhist monks in ecstatic prayer. But what was so interesting about our situation is that they weren't looking at people who required years of disciplined practice or people who needed hours of priming to get into that state. These were people who were total novices, who'd had a 15-minute video from me explaining how to do this. And they were putting, and all they needed was a group. And they had some sort of fast track to uh, an ecstatic state of mind. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Um, I think it is following, first of all, having connection. For me, the most important thing is my husband of 
and partner for some 30 years and our two grown-up daughters, um, number one. Number two is having a fulfilling work that in me, for me, is something, it has to be something that tries to make a difference, that tries to give people hope. I think hope is the most important thing there is, to be honest. And my work is, if I try to characterize all the different things I've tried to do, I suppose it's all about giving people hope. Um, um, and, uh, you know, living the good life in terms of, not the good life in terms of money, but the good life in terms of health and, uh, and health and, you know, eating well, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those kind of things, and, you know, as I say, community, having a solid network of friends and those to me, those, those pillars are really, really essential. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that have a positive effect on their lives? Get seven of your friends together or connect virtually with a group and create a group, a power of eight group and start intending for each other and watch the transformations. Imagine you're holding hands and you're in connected, just Hold it, all hold the same intention statement for one of the members of the group or somebody outside and see what happens. Awesome. How can people find out more about you and your work? They can come to lynnmctaggart.com. That's my website. It has all my information. Um, and, you know, check out my new book, The Power of Eight.